Now, I recently came across uh, a website, uh, a website that has a collection of the things that the former president, Donald Trump, likes to say about himself, right? And here, here, here are a few, some few quotes. There are a number of websites which are like this, but here's the ones I found from this particular website. Some few quotes from uh, President Donald Trump. He says, I am the most successful person ever to run for the presidency, by far. Nobody's ever been more successful than me. Ross Perot isn't successful like me. Mitt Romney, I have a Gucci store that's worth more than Mitt Romney. That's one. And here is another one. This one is on Twitter. This one was quoted from Twitter. It says this, sorry losers and haters, but my IQ is one of the highest, and you all know it. So don't feel so insecure, it's not your fault. <laughs> and in another tweet, he says this, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being like really smart. <laughs> I am a very stable genius. Now, the things Mr. Trump says are funny, aren't they? They are quite shocking. There's a lot more on there. You can find them online. Actually, it's quite good if you just want to have a day of laughing. You can look these up and they're just, they're really good. When I read them, and I'm sure when you hear Trump speak, you sometimes you ask yourself, does he really believe that about himself? How can he be so proud? I mean, what is wrong with him? But as I thought about that, I think that's a wrong question to ask, isn't it? What we should really be asking is, what is wrong with us as people? Because the truth of the matter is that there is a mini Trump in all of us. There's something of Donald Trump in all of us. All of us are proud. We are proud people. It is one of the hardest things under the sun to become nothing in ourselves. And what makes our pride so dangerous is that all of us are blind to just how prideful we are. We are all prone to think, actually, that pride is not a problem for us, it's a problem for other people. The reason is that we are quick, isn't it, to compare ourselves to the worst people or the most public exhibition of pride. It makes us feel righteous. Uh, it comforts us that we are okay. So we look at Donald Trump and we say to ourselves, he's so proud, he should be more like me. <laughs> I am humble. And of course, that is shooting ourselves in the foot, isn't it? Because the moment we think we are, we are humble, then we are prideful. Now, the Bible is clear that all of us, by nature, are prideful. Your pride is behind every sin you commit against God. It's a sin by this very nature is self-exhortation against the rule of God, against God our King. Pride is the reason you are unkind sometimes, impatient, demanding, unforgiving. Pride is the reason you, can, you are often judgmental. Pride is behind our lust, our coveting, our lying. It's behind every sin. We do these things because we believe we deserve what we don't have. That's why we sin. Our pride denies God and others the place they should have in our lives. Now, the problem is that pride is not a small thing in the sight of God. Proverbs 16, 
verse 5 says this about pride. It says, everyone, 16 verse 5, everyone who is arrogant is in his heart, everyone who is arrogant in heart or prideful is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16 verse 18 goes, says, pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. It's interesting, actually, when you read that particular verse 5 of Proverbs 16, it, it, it doesn't say pride is an abomination to God. It actually said the person who is pride is an abomination to God. The very focus of it is on the fact that God finds the prideful person an abomination to God. To himself. God, in other words, hates the proud. But the good news of the Bible is that when we repent and trust in the Lord Jesus, God gives us a new heart that is now capable of growing in humbleness. And Paul makes this very point in the passage we began looking at this morning uh, in Colossians. Uh, and again, let me just read that context of that. Colossians 3, and I'll read again verse 9 to 12. I do not lie to one another, starting verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you are put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And then verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul is saying, isn't it? We said this morning, he's saying to us, you need to put off the filthy clothes of sin, those sins that are damaging your new life together, he's saying to the Colossians. Get rid of them. Now, put them off. And start putting on these new clothes of goodness in Christ. These clothes that will help you treat each other well. Because you are now together a new humanity in Christ. Christ is in all of you, Paul says. Christ is all and in all. Now, in verse 12 to 15, Paul describes how we should treat each other as a new family, as a new humanity in Christ. And this morning, we started looking at this section. And the first thing we looked at uh, is the mark of compassion and kindness. We said, because we are now in Christ, we must be compassionate, uh, hearted, and kind. We looked at that. Well, the second thing I want to look at this evening is humility. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness. And then he says, humility. Paul is saying to all followers of Christ, be humble. Grow in humbleness. Have humility before God and towards one another. What does Paul mean by humility? What is humility to you? I wonder how you would define humility. I simply say humility is repentance of pride. It is having a humble mind. Humility is lowliness of mind. It is self-abasement. And in the Bible, true humility is being entirely dependent on God rather than depending on yourself. And that dependence on God results in us being humble towards other people. 
Humility is servanthood. Servanthood. Those who are humble are always about serving others. And this comes first as seeing ourselves first as servants of God. We cannot be humble towards other people without being humble before God. God must first humble us before we can be humble towards others. And we can't be humble to God, we can't say we are humble to God, if we are not humble before others. It's a lie. We need to remember that it is so easy for us to delude ourselves that we are humble before God while being proud and rude to people around us. That's no humility. True humility is a heart issue. It is not possible to have one heart before God and one heart before others. It is not possible to have a humble heart before God and then a proud heart towards your children. A proud heart towards your wife, or a proud heart towards your neighbors, or a proud heart towards members of the church. It's not biblical humility to be double-hearted. The proof that you are humble before God is not your lofty prayers, where you are constantly crying out to God, Woe is me, I am a sinner, O Lord. That's not the proof of your humility. The proof of your humbleness to God is this. Are you a humble person towards every person in this room? Are you a humble person towards your family members, even the difficult family members? Are you a humble person towards a difficult boss at work, a rude colleague at work? In other words, are you humble in your everyday relationships? The humbleness that we withstand Judgment Day is the humbleness you exercise in daily relationships. Because that humbleness arises from a changed heart within. And so as we come to verse 12, Paul is saying to the Colossians, isn't it? He's saying to the Colossians and us, don't just act humble. Don't just act humble to your wife or people whom you like. Grow in being humble towards all. You see, when you look at verse 12 in the context of verse 11 and verse 10, it becomes clear that the emphasis is how we treat everyone irrespective of how they treat us. Paul is saying your humility needs to be who you are before God. It must grow out of your new nature in Christ, our humble King. It must not be a selective humility. It must flow out of you. Be humble, Paul is saying in verse 12. How does a humble person relate to other people? How can I know I'm relating to people in a humble way? Well, a humble person is self-forgetful. She's not occupied with self-promotion. A humble person loves a low seat, we might say. Humble people are like Henry Martin who said, people often admire me, but I abhor. I hate the pleasure that I feel. A humble person thinks herself less. 
our focus is on other people. And the humble person delights in the wins of others, the achievements of other people. He does not see other people as competitors. He rejoices and delights in their achievements. When we are truly humble, we feel no jealous. We feel no jealous or envy towards other people. We can praise God when another person is blessed by God in some area. We are not endlessly preoccupied with our reputation when we are humble. We are happy not to be remembered and we are happy even to be forgotten. Because we are not obsessed with the self. Humble people are like George Whitfield who said, Let my name be forgotten. Let me be trodden down under the feet of all men. If Jesus will be glorified by that. Humble people are also forgiving people, aren't they? If you have a forgiving heart, then God is growing you in humbleness. Do you struggle to forgive those who do you wrong? Then it's because, like all of us, you have pride issues. You struggle with pride. Your pride makes you impatient and unwilling to to forgive, and your pride makes it impossible for you to apologize. It makes it harder for you to confess your own faults. You see, because pride makes you want to appear perfect. And Paul is saying to us in verse 12, isn't it? Look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, he says. Humility. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. Because you are put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. He's saying because you have Christ in you. He's saying, look, do not give in to pride. Keep growing in humility towards each other because this is your new nature in Christ. He's saying. Now, the Lord Jesus is God the Son, isn't it? And we know Christ was and is full of humility. We see the humility of Christ as we open the pages of Scripture and we read particularly the four Gospels. Four quick ways in which we see, certainly I noticed the humility of Christ. First of all, Christ was humble in his nature. That's the first thing. Christ was humble in his human nature. God the Almighty, our Lord Jesus Christ, willingly put on our humanity with all its limitations. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, Paul says. The creator of humanity became like humanity. And he became dependent on humanity. Just think for a minute. Think for a minute. That the Almighty God was born as a helpless baby. Like share there. Unable to do anything more than lie down, stare, wriggle. In fact, mothers, when you go home, just study the baby for a little bit and just bow in worship of Christ that he became like this baby. And dads, of course. To the same thing. Lie down, stare, wriggle, make noise. That's all Christ could do as a baby. He needed feeding, didn't he? He needed to be changed. He needed to be taught by his mom. 
Just like any other baby. And we have not even mentioned how it must have been for Christ to be in the womb and the dependency of him being inside Mary's virgin womb. God humbled himself in Christ, taking on the limitations of our human nature. He was humble in his human nature. That's the first thing. Secondly, Christ was humble in how he lived. During Christmas, we were reminded that Christ grew up in Nazareth, isn't it? A place of shame. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He chose to have a, not just, not a, not a God-standard man, but a poor teenage mother. He was born in a manger of all places. And much of Christ's life, of course, was lived in the poverty of obscurity. We do not know much about those, those years when Christ was below 30 and as, as it were, because it was a period of humbleness and obscurity, just swinging the hammer, as it were, alongside his dad, Joseph, a lowly carpenter. So Christ, even the way he lived, on a day-to-day basis, was humble. And secondly, Christ was third. The third thing is that Christ was humble in how he ministered. His ministry was marked by humbleness. When we come to Luke later on this year, we'll be reminded afresh of that as we see Christ's ministry. ministry. You know, we sometimes say of people, don't we? They are clever and they know it, right? Because great people and intelligent people, they like to be noticed, don't they? Not Christ. Not Christ. Christ never stood on his infinite dignity and demand attention from people. We never see Christ demanding special favors from anyone, which were his by right as God. Instead, Christ said, as we sang in that hymn, I did not come to be served. Imagine that, God saying that. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. To serve and serve you. And we see Christ, don't we, taking a basin and a towel. And he starts washing the dirty feet of Peter and other disciples. Such humbleness. You know, they say, if we are too big for little things, we are too little for big things. If we are too big for little things, we are too little for big things. Christ was never too big for us vile sinners. He is a God who stooped for us. Christ was was humble in his speech. You know, Christ didn't know about people with constant reminders of who he was. He simply allowed, allowed his miracles to speak for him, to point to his dignity and the cross. You know, Christ could have dazzled humanity with the greatest knowledge and wisdom. He'd be like, wow. And their whole arguments would have ended. He could have overwhelmed the disciples with infinite knowledge. But Christ was tender, humble towards them. And apart from when Christ entered Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill the prophetic word of God, we actually in the scriptures never see Christ 
seek praise from people. Even his entrance into the temple was merely fulfilling scripture. He wasn't seeking worship. That's Christ. He deserved worship because he's God, but he never sought it. In fact, most of the time when Christ healed someone, he was quick to say to them, do not tell them who I am. Our Lord was content with obscurity. You know, many people who are gifted or blessed in some area find it very hard to resist praise. Christ was not like that. And Christ didn't find it hard either to relate to people who were infinite below him. Rich people can't often relate to those who are way down there. Their riches and knowledge almost acts like a barrier towards them. Very intelligent people, you find academics, not being bad on them, I hope, academics who are very bright, they actually have poor social skills. They struggle. And I'll just say, this was the trouble with the pandemic. <laughs> the, the academics who were in charge of managing our pandemic didn't know people. They spent all their time reading books. And so they were doing things that didn't really make much sense at a human level. And that's understandable. Clever people can't struggle to relate to people who are not as clever as them. The, the, the knowledge and, 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 and they have distances them. And we expect Christ's dignity to distance him from people. Because as God, his ways are not our ways. But when Christ enters this world, we see that he was humble. We saw that Christ related wonderfully to people from all walks of life. He sought to reach out to them. And the Lord of glory had time for every person he came into contact with. He had time for the leper we see in Mark 1. He had time for the woman of Samaria in John 4. He had time for blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10. He's got time for the woman who bled for many years. He's got time for Jairus' daughter. And the list just goes on. He's got time for dead Lazarus. And you know what? As I was thinking about this, our Lord even gave three years of his time to Judas. Whom, as John tells us, he knew beforehand was going to betray him. And yet Christ humbled himself before his enemy. Judas is carried. And ultimately, of course, we see the humbleness of our Lord Jesus on the cross, don't we? Where he willingly laid down his life for proud sinners. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8 there. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Not just any other death, even death on a cross. A shameful cross. 
And when we think about Christ's life and, and his death, we realize that the Lord Jesus our Christ, allowed himself to be betrayed by men. What humbleness. To be arrested, put into handcuffs as it were. To be judged by human beings. To be condemned by them, to be mocked, to be spat on and brutally killed. And being led there in a tomb of men. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. What humbleness, beloved. What humbleness. You know, the Puritans have reflected a lot on the humbleness of Christ. And the Puritan, particularly John Flavio, asked this question. Is it not astonishing, he says, that Christ, who from eternity had his father's smiles and honors, that this Christ, who before the world was created, was adored and worshipped by angels as their God, this Christ, for our sake, became a footstool for every miscreant to tread on. It's astonishing, isn't it? His humbleness leaves us speechless. And it should move us into, immediately into worship. We should stop here and worship and bow down before God and acknowledge just the wonder of the humility of Christ. God the Son stripped himself of all the robes of glory. For what? To serve me, a sinner. A wretched sinner. Christ is truly the definition of humility. As Andrew Murray says, says this in his book, Humility, which I commend to you, Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling himself, clothing himself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve us. He is the love and condescension of God, the benefactor, the helper and servant of all. Jesus is the incarnate Humility. Even now, John Mary says, Christ stands in the midst of the throne of God as the meek and lowly, lowly lamb of God. And so it is because then, isn't it? Because we have been saved by our humble king, poor he said. Because of this Jesus who's full of humility. Because we share life with this Jesus. That's why Paul says to us in verse 12, put on them as God's chosen ones, Christ's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on these compassionate hearts, kindness, and yes, humility. Humility. Paul is saying to the Colossians and us, you now belong to God in Christ who is full of humility. And you are put on this new nature of Christ. So keep growing in this nature of Christ. Keep growing in your humbleness before God. And let the humbleness before God result in truly being humble towards people around you. Especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, which is the context of this passage. We need to grow in being humble. Because, you see, like all other virtues here listed in verse 12 to verse 15, it is good for us. This morning I spoke about why it is good for us to be kind and compassionate. And it is also true for humility, isn't it? It is good for you to be humble. It is good for you to be brought low by God. 
It is good for you to be humble before a brother, before a sister, because as you grow in humbleness, it grows your happiness in Christ. You see, we can't live for Christ without humility. In fact, all of these virtues we are looking at, they can't work without humility. There can be no compassion, no kindness, no meekness. We'll look at that next Sunday morning. No patience without humility. We cannot have, we cannot obey all the commands that are coming through the rest of chapter 3, which relates to the household code and, of course, how we do our work and, and, and how we live as a church without humility. We can only have a healthy church if each and every one of us is growing in humility. This church can only have peace if it is occupied by humble people. And you can have a good marriage without humility. Unless God humbles you, you cannot function as a wife. You cannot function as a husband. You cannot function as a loving parent without growing in humility. Your children cannot grow to be obedient to you without growing in humility. You cannot become a God-honoring employer without humility. You cannot be a faithful employee without humility. As I said, as we'll come later, we'll see all of the rest of chapter 3 cannot happen without humility. And chapter 4. Humility is good for us. Growing in humility grows our happiness in God. Because it makes us more like Christ. And as I said this morning, no one is happier than Christ. And so the more we become like Christ, the more happy we become. Like all the other virtues, the more we grow in humility, the more we, of course, grow in our assurance, isn't it? That we are truly children of God. Because Christ is incarnate humility. And so if we grow in that, we realize we belong to Christ, and, and that assures us. We can say, Christ is really my true brother. Humility, of course, is the fruit of God, the Holy Spirit, who lives in us. And so growing in this area is a key mark that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. As I said, the more we grow in our assurance that we are, we are children of God, the more we grow in our prayer life, the more we grow in our intimacy with God. You, if, if you're not sure you're a believer, your prayer life will be difficult. But the more God assures you that you are his because you're seeing evidences of this change of humility, kindness, and patience, the more you, 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 you can pray prayers of faith. You need faith when you pray. God is not interested in prayers that have no faith in it. And so assurance grows our faith, doesn't it? And that assurance is grows when we see evidences of humility, kindness, and compassion in our lives. And of course, if we want to be channels of God's blessing... We want to be used by God to minister to others. Christ ministers through humility. So the more we grow in humility, the more we'll be able to minister to others. God is only interested in using vessels that have been humbled by him. God is not going to use anyone who's competing against him. 
or others. And the wonder of it is that as God humbles us, as we grow in humility, as we are used by God, as I said this morning, we are blessed through it, isn't it? The more we are humble to others, the more we experience His grace. First Peter 5, verse 6. I mentioned it this morning. Humble yourselves, says Peter, First Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may what? Exhort you. Pause on that. God exhorting you. Not worshipping you, lifting you up. Because God gives more grace to the humble. As, as I reminded us this morning, God is gracious to, our, to us all the time. But the depth of how we experience His goodness and grace grows as we grow in being humble to God. God thinks most of a woman who thinks less of herself. If you want to be knighted by God, you must learn to kneel before God and before others. You must grow in your humbleness. As someone has said, swallowing our pride never leads to indigestion. (laughs) The people who have been most used by God have always been the most humble people. If you want to see the height, as it were, of the hill of God's eternal love, you must be willing to go down into the valley of humility. As we see in Banyan's um, Pilgrim's Progress. We must be willing to tumble down into the valley of humiliation, to learn humility. You must be willing to grow in humbleness. So growing in humbleness is good for us, isn't it? I'm just emphasizing that, just to remind you, it is good for you to be humble. To be humbled by God. Because of the benefits it brings. You should desire this. But it's also good, not only because of the benefits it brings, it's good because of the dangers it avoids. It avoids the dangers of pride. If you're not humble, you're prideful. And pride brings lots of dangers. Proud people don't suffer well. They don't suffer well. But I wrote prayer just now. He said, he, he was praying that we'd share more of our prayer requests. If we don't share, why are we not sharing our prayer requests? It's pride. It's pride. And if we don't share our prayer requests, no answers to our prayer. Because God is not going to answer your prayer if you're prideful. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so what happens is that proud people don't suffer well. Of course, there are caveats about confidentiality and there's a lot we as a church can do, but you get the idea, I hope. Proud people cannot be helped because they can never ask for help. And proud people, of course, cannot be generous. So what we're talking about, kindness and compassion, goes out of the window. And therefore they give and you'll be given more, as Christ promised in Luke 6, isn't for them. Proud people are never happy in life. The saddest people I know are the most prideful people. Because you see, prideful people are always envying the blessings of others. So they can never have peace in them. And prideful people can never form long-term friendships with people around them. Proud people are not able to confess relational sins. 
They are always on the defensive. They never grow in love because winning is all they want. When people are proud, they cannot be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. That blessing isn't for the proud. Because proud people are always up for division. Their lives are bitter because they are always keeping scores and holding on to historic wrongs. Because proud people thrive on being noticed and receiving praise, they put everyone on the edge. And so people eventually walk on eggshells around them or walk away from them. It's terrible to be proud. Proud people ask for loyalty that no one can give. And the result is people forsake them. The fruit of pride is never good. It always destroys us. And so we see that Paul here is encouraging us to have humility because it's good for us. Because in having humility, we have the blessings of humility and we avoid the dangers of pride. There's the benefits, positive benefits, and the costs avoided. That's a double benefit. And so this evening, let's take this to heart, what Paul has said to us, this encouragement from Paul. Let us resolve this evening to grow in humbleness before God, and let us resolve to grow in humbleness before others. And the big question, therefore, for us is, as we asked this morning, is, given that humility is good for us, how do we grow in humility? God wants us to grow in this, so how do we do it? Well, we grow in humility by growing in self-denial. The highest point of Christ's humility is when the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself in death. Christ willingly and practically laid down his life for us. So if we are to grow in humility, well, we need to grow in dying to self, don't we? And how do we die to self? Well, this is not something we can do in our own power. No one wants to die to self. It is something that God must do in me, in you. Being humble is actually something God does to us. He must humble us. God is the author of humility. God, you see what happens is that God takes the first step to humble us, doesn't he? His humbling hand, as it were, descends on us. It first comes down on us. And then it is only as God begins to humble us that we welcome and receive this humbling. And then we are then, as it were, participating in the growth of being humble. His hand must first descend. A painful hand must first descend, and as we submit, we are then growing and participating in being humbled. So the first step then is this. We need, we, the first step we need to take to grow in humility is the first step we need to take to grow in kindness and compassion, and that is we need to pray. But in this case, we must pray specifically to be humbled by God. Did you hear that? You need to pray to God 
to humble you. I don't know about you, but that is not an easy prayer. To really pray that and mean it is, I feel, humanly speaking, impossible. It is. It's difficult. Because we know that God does not grow our humility through an easy or comfortable life. Humility grows through conflict, pain, and chaos. That's the conditions. That's a war zone. It's a fruit that's born out of a spiritual war zone of great suffering, conflict, pain, disappointment, chaos. You have so much pride in you that the process of God removing your pride is going to be a painful process. Because your pride, you see, is not a mere headache. You must think of your pride as sort of a deep ingrained spiritual cancer that you have. That will require a lifelong treatment of spiritual chemotherapy. And it's going to hurt. But it is for your good. And of course we know that it is painful. That is why we never really pray to be humbled by God. And when we have prayed it, we are thinking, what did I just do? In our head. It is hard. It's a hard prayer. So I think what we should do then is to pray to God to help us to pray for it. I know that sounds confusing. We should pray, Lord, give me the strength to genuinely seek this in prayer. You're praying to pray, right? You're praying, I know I should ask you to make me humble, but I am scared of asking you to make me humble. Please strengthen me to ask you and mean it. I know, that sounds like a coward's prayer. It is, but it is an honest coward, right? It's an honest coward's prayer. And it is the first step. And we can pray that because our God is gracious. He knows our weaknesses. If you start asking him to help you pray, to help you to seek this, God will give you the strength to pray your prayers genuinely for this, and you'll answer it. There's no prayer God... There's no prayer God would be more delighted to answer than to a prayer for you to be humbled by him. And in time, God will help you to see the benefits we've talked about and accept those benefits that come with being humbled. So the first step is then we need to ask God for it. The second step, quickly, to grow in humility is to keep reminding ourselves what Christ has done for us. As we said this morning, same thing with kindness, compassion, and all these other virtues. It's so important we take the context of his command into account because verse 12 is the key, the beginning of verse 12. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is the, what we must remember. Those three things are cardinal, aren't they? Remind yourself that you're only a Christian because God has graciously chosen you before the foundation of the world to be his child in Christ. And beloved, I believe as you meditate on this goodness of choosing you, you will be filled with humility for others. The doctrine of election is a humbling doctrine. And that's why it's opposed. Because it says it's not up to you. You did not choose God. God chose you. You do not deserve your life with God. 
And as you are reminded of this doctrine all the time, you will grow to be humble towards others who don't deserve your humbleness. Second, remind yourself that because you're a Christian, you're now holy before God. You've been set apart for Christ. Christ is your humble king. This, and because you are in Christ, this is your true nature now, humility. Humility is now your identity. You know, sometimes we, we struggle to get our children to uh, wear clothes that we think are appropriate for them, don't we? We do, right? You're like, this is the clothes you need to wear, and they may have their different views, right? And so we work hard to persuade them. No, actually, this is your clothes. This is your identity. The identity you think you have is not. And that's what Paul is doing here. If we as believers are going to grow in Christ, we must be convinced that these clothes here, compassion, kindness, humility, are our true clothes. They are who who we are in Christ. They fit well. And so we must remind ourselves of that and and that continuously. Remember that humility is your right cloth for you to wear in Christ. And the more you really want to wear it, the more you grow in humility. The third thing, of course, you should remind yourself is that you are a true Christian because you are beloved by God. God will never leave you nor forsake you. I think this is so cardinal. All of them are these three. They are like a a cord of three that cannot be easily broken. The the point here is that being loved by God is so important, especially when it comes to humility. It's important for all of these, as we'll see. It's going to be important next Sunday morning when it comes to meekness. Meekness is a whole another level, right? (laughs) On humility. It's... uh, Deep. So, so, and knowing that you are beloved by God, though, is, is, is vital. Because the more you remember his love for you, the more you see that being humble is not a loss for you. You can never lose by being like Christ. No matter how much you sacrifice for him, your life will always be full because you are loved by him. So that's the second step. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ. The third and final step, and I'll end here. Is different from what we looked at this morning. We didn't have this step this morning. So write it down. <laughs> the third step is to actively seek opportunities in which God can grow you in humility. It's practical. In this church, ask yourself, what is the humblest thing I can do in this church? And run after it. When you come Sunday morning, say, what is the humblest way I can sit this Sunday morning? That sounds interesting, doesn't it? I know, because most of us, when we come, we come very selfish. It's a packed Sunday morning and we're sitting on the edges. I see everything from here. So (laughs) we're sitting on the edges. It's hard for people to get in. But if you even ask yourself, what is the humblest way I can sit? That's a good thing. You're making your life easier. The next part, sit like our dear sister there. Of course, it's easy for her. She sits by the piano. But you get the point. You, 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 you make life easy for others. Ask yourself, get into the habit of asking yourself, what is the humblest way I can relate to my brothers and sisters here? What is the humblest job I can do in this fellowship? What is the humblest way I could serve here? Seek opportunities to be humble. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Do the same thing in your life as a, a home. I have to remind myself of this because this is hard, isn't it? <laughs> this is hard. This is probably the point of preaching which I find so guilty. I've got to confess it right here. It's asking, what is the humblest thing I can do in the home, right? 
Oh man, that's, that, that's hard, right? But we must ask that if we're serious about being humble. Just ask yourself privately. Don't ask the wife to tell you. <laughs> Just ask yourself. But the point is, you've got to start somewhere. So, so, so this seek these opportunities. Something at work, isn't it? Your work, I know, pays you money and you have a contractual relationship, but you are meant to, to be at work as Christ would be at work. What is the humblest way for you to relate to your employees? What would humbleness look like for you then? What would be humbleness look like for you as an employee? What is the humblest thing you could do at work? Just before God, in a way that shows your humbleness to others. It might be going an extra mile. Or it might be for some of us just standing up on time in a culture in which people never turn up on time. Seek opportunities to be humble. So, those are the three steps, aren't they? To grow in humility, pray to God to grow you. It's got to be God to grow in humbleness. You've got to pray. Keep reminding yourself of who you are in Christ. And thirdly, keep looking for opportunities to grow you in humbleness. And I would add, if I was to add a fourth, which I won't go into, I'll simply say, be intentional about specific relationships, particularly, where you're struggling to be humble. Pray about those. And don't be content to leave them as they have. Ask the strength of God to help you relate in a practical, humble way. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, Christ, as our humble King. Oh Lord God, we recognize that we come far short of his glorious standard. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for doing damage to ourselves in the way we live and minister to others and care for our families. We are proud people. Forgive us the way we do ourselves injury as a church when we are prideful towards one another. Oh Lord, how we long for that this church would be filled with hearts that are full of humility. Because, Lord, we know that the world would see that and take notice. In a world of competition, they will see hearts that have been truly changed by Christ. So help us to be like that. In Jesus' name. Amen.